Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, May 15th, 2018. Yeah, I got back a day late. The uh, pirate Christian Mobile <laughs> died on the way back from Indiana. <sighs> Not too bad, though. It, it was the alternator. It went out on it. So, you know, yesterday was about recovering the vehicle. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare, compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, <gasps> self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over it again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put out there for a consumption by Christians, is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. It's like not even close. And so what we want to do is protect you from those who are teaching false doctrine and manipulating God's Word, making it void, and trying to get you to submit to their authority and leadership and stuff like that, uh, when in fact they are not representatives of Christ, they are instead wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, if you remember when we last left off, not last week, but the week before, I had played for you a lecture on apostles and also uh, a, a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon about apostles. All of that was in preparation for when I would get back. Now, my, I had hoped to be back in studio yesterday, uh, but uh, you know, my travels to the state of Indiana uh, in, as, for festivities related to my son's graduation from college, uh, the, the trip there was smooth. The trip back, yeah, not so much. So uh, the alternator on my FJ Cruiser, uh, my 2007 FJ Cruiser with over 200,000 miles on it, <laughs> uh, decided to uh, give out and uh, barely made it to Fargo. And I, I mean, it was it was a close call. We barely made it to Fargo. The car literally died on the uh, off ramp, less than a mile away from the Toyota dealership we were thinking about bringing it to. And uh, we ended up having to call a tow truck and, and tow it out there. And so uh, yesterday was about recovering 
my vehicle, which kept me from uh, being in studio. So that I just wanted to give you the explanation. So, you know, I know it's been a little bit of time between the last episodes of fighting for the faith and today. And, uh, part of that's due to the, uh, the, the planned trip, but the other part of it was unplanned. So just, just so you know, now a little bit of a heads up this week will be, uh, because this, uh, you know, this episode will be a, a shorter week. We'll only get four episodes in this week. Next week will be a normal week of fighting for the faith. And then I'm going to be out of studio for another couple of weeks, uh, tending to church business. And so, uh, and then I'll, and then I'll be back, uh, you know, the second week of June. Um, and we'll be back in studio with, with only a brief, with a couple of days, I'll be out again at the end of the, uh, at the end of uh, June. So yeah, I just want to prepare you ahead of time that uh, we're kind of getting into a little bit of a busy season and me being uh bivocational. Sometimes I, you know, I, the, the pastor job and duties uh, will preclude other things. And so, and I'm going to try to get a little bit of R and R in the midst of all of that. So just want to prepare you ahead of time. So you don't freak out, you know, Oh, where did Roseboro go now? Nothing's wrong. It's it, all of this stuff is planned out ahead of time. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Important to note this, that uh, this episode will also, at least the first hour of it, will be available on YouTube. And as I'm recording the podcast, it's important to note that I actually pre-recorded what you're going to hear. And so uh, I'm going to treat it as a pre-recorded portion of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, this is going to be on the Masting of Michael Brown Part 2. It is a long segment, so it is, it's longer than an hour, and uh, you, you need to know that. You'll need your Bible for the second half of it, but uh, we're going to take Michael Brown on again because, you know, again, he's basically painted all the critics of the NAR as lunatic fringe hypercritics who have done a sloppy job of defining the new apostolic reformation, and they believe it's some kind of weird conspiracy that's going to take over. Yeah, you get the idea. And uh, I'm going to be making the point in in just a minute here that uh, it's not it's not that the critics of the NAR have done a sloppy job of defining the NAR. No, the the problem is is that people like Michael Brown, who is a five folder, he he is a self avowed five folder. So he believes that there are apostles today, and that there have always been apostles, and we'll let him explain that. You know, it's part of the five fold ministry. Uh, but uh, people in the NAR and the five folders like Michael Brown, the problem is, is that they haven't actually clearly defined what an apostle is, and they're playing both sides of the game, uh, both sides of the coin. They're dealing from the bottom of the deck. So what we'll do is we'll get into it in just a second here. We'll take a break partway through. We'll finish out the first hour, and then in hour number two. Uh, we're going to actually review a sermon that is available on the uh, uh, the website for the United States Council of a Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, of which Joseph Matera is the convening apostolic leader. And the name of the sermon, and I reviewed just a portion of it in uh, the first hour, but the name of the sermon is the Apostolic Church, and uh, and so the idea then is is that uh, Joseph Matera who is the current convening apostolic leader there at USCAL, is going to explain to us what the apostolic church is. So as we listen to it, and you'll, you'll understand after hearing the first hour, we'll ask ourselves, is he describing 
big A apostles or small A apostles, uh, otherwise known as missionaries. But uh, you'll you'll get the idea as we uh, get to it. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground we need to cover. And since the entire program is actually dedicated to the new apostolic reformation, let's do this. What do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. Elaboratory mice, the genes have sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done. Will be By the dawning of the sun, they'll take over the world. They're pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. The twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're pinky, they're pinky and the brain, 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 brain. brain. Let's dive right into it. Here's the audio from what I recorded earlier today on the masting of Michael Brown, part two. Here we go. We're going to continue with uh, the masting of Michael Brown, part two today. And uh, we're going to need to do a lot of biblical work determining what Scripture teaches regarding what the apostolic ministry is all about biblically. You know, who is an apostle, who was an apostle, what are the biblical qualifications for apostle and things of that nature. And uh, we'll bounce these ideas off of things that are said by not only Michael Brown, but uh, Joseph Matera, the convening apostle for the United States Council of Apostolic Leaders, which, by the way, Michael Brown is a member of that organization. So let me go ahead and pull up our display here, and uh, we're going to begin by uh, listening to uh, Michael Brown talking about his affiliation with a group that is associated with the NAR. No joke, he talks about that. Here's uh, Michael Brown to explain. Let me just alert you to a show we have planned for Monday with my friend Dr. Joe Matera. He has been around with the forming of what was known as the NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. He leads today the U.S. Council of Apostolic Leaders. I'm a member of that. It's hundreds of leaders from around America. And he has... So he's a member. Michael Brown is a member of the United States Council of Apostolic Leaders. Important to note. Clearly made statements distancing himself and the organization from some of the tenets of NAR. Right, the tenets that the critics have been pointing out. So he's distancing himself from the so-called NAR, the stuff that the critics have been pointing out. He's distancing himself from them. Important to note that Michael Brown, um, you know, until very recently, has pretty much totally dismissed the idea that... Uh, uh, such an NAR ever existed, and now he's recognizing that, uh, yeah, it, it it did exist, but we're changing it. And he's a member of the uh, group that's actively working to, to, you know, to change and do away with the old NAR. 
say, but he is an artist. No, no, that's the terminological thing that I keep trying to help people understand. Mm-hmm. That there's a difference between those of us who believe in fivefold ministry today. Now we're going to talk about that. By the way, Michael Brown is uh, basically saying he's not in the NAR, at least not the way the critics have defined it. Fine, fine. Instead, he's a fivefolder. You know, a fivefold guy. We'll talk about that biblically in a little bit here. Those prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Those of us who believe in that today, and what is often called NAR. It is the sloppy use of the term that has concerned me. Now, I'm going to take a real big issue here. See, the issue is not the sloppy use of the term NAR. You know, I point to people like Holly Pivik and others, including myself, who've done their homework, who have extensively quoted from people who have been part of the New Apostolic Reformation, especially going back to... See Peter Wagner and uh, the things that he's written in his books. You know, you think of Bishop Hammond and others that uh, are part of the New Apostolic Reformation. And we've even noted that, uh, you know, Bill Johnson of Bethel Church in Redding, California, he was introduced as as an uh, apostle by C. Peter Wagner at uh, Todd Bentley's uh, Apostolic Commissioning Service. So, you know, what I find fascinating here is that it is Michael Brown who is accusing critics who've actually done their homework, quoted primary sources, and people associated with the uh, NAR, Shayon and others, as somehow sloppily using the term NAR. I'm going to note that it is Michael Brown and Joseph Matera and others who are engaging in a sloppy use of the word apostolic and apostle, and through their sloppy use of it, are actually creating more problems for the church as well as themselves. And we're going to clean up the term apostle and apostolic with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. But I I just wanted to have you hear him say how it's the critics who are sloppily using the term NAR. Is the hysteria associated with some of the fringe abuses that have concerned me, and with that, Oh, hang on. I used a wrong verb there. The hysteria, I should have said has. All right. So the hysteria associated with some of the abuses that has concerned me. Just trying to be grammatically correct. I don't want to frustrate any English teachers who are listening. But because of some of the hysteria, I, I heard clips from a video. Nar now is controlling the lives of over 350 million people worldwide. It's yeah, that's a mischaracterization of uh, Todd Friel's uh, video, which you can purchase over at uh, Wretched called Drunk in the Spirit. And uh, I, well worth the watch is the best way I can put it. And it's clear that uh, what Michael Brown do is doing here is reacting to uh, Todd Friel's work. Now, let me uh, quote go back a little bit to uh, February of this year. And I want you to listen to how Michael Brown defines the word apostle. And uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, I've heard him use this before, but this is not how he's going to use it in this uh, video clip. But uh, he makes a distinction between big A apostles and little a apostles. Think back to the days when you used to watch Sesame Street and you were learning the difference between capital letters and small case letters. And so the idea here is is that Michael Brown in this clip 
is going to say he's a five-fold guy. He believes that apostles have been around since the beginning. We just haven't called them apostles. And so he's going to be describing little a apostles. And uh, we'll note how he's defining them. And uh, we're also going to point out the fact that this is not how men like Joseph Matera are defining uh, apostolic leaders. But uh, let's let uh, Michael Brown spin this out for us. I'll tell you exactly what I believe. I believe that since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, based on Ephesians 4, that there have been apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in every generation. I believe that they've been here for the good of the church and that my understanding of the Greek in Ephesians 4 is that these have been established in the church until we reach full maturity. All right, so the five-fold argument is that Ephesians 4.11, basically it says that we are going to have apostles on earth until Jesus' return. We'll take a look at that exegetically in a little bit, but I wanted you to hear it. So he's saying there have always been apostles on the earth. Now, important to note here, men like C. Peter Wagner and Bill Hammond and others have been talking about the restoration of apostles. See, Peter Wagner was a guy who was a restorationist when it comes to apostles because he taught that people possessed an apostolic office. And so, you know, what he's describing here, what Michael Brown is describing here, is different than what uh, C. Peter Wagner taught and wrote about. The 12 apostles, they are unique. They wrote scripture. Their names are on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. No one has the authority of the 12 apostles today. All right. So big A apostles is that that's the, you know, so he's making a distinction between big A apostles and then little A apostles coming up. There are what we call small A apostles. The Greek is just emissaries. Barnabas, for example, is called an apostle in Acts 14, 14. And that these were people that had certain roles. They were planters. They were founders. They were pioneers. They were spiritual fathers to other movements. So planters, founders, pioneers. Let's just boil it down to one word. We'll call uh, the, the way he's describing an apostle in the little case sense as a missionary. You know, we'll just we'll use the word missionary. Um, so that's what we'll use moving forward. And as we listen to Joseph Matera talk about, uh, you know, apostles, and we'll also do a little bit of uh, historical work here, because uh, one of the major leaders of the U.S. Council of Apostolic Leaders uh, is mentioned by a fellow in Rwanda. We'll show you this, and we'll just as we listen to these different things, we'll ask ourselves a question: Does this make sense? If what we're talking about is a missionary, now my my immediate question comes up: If you know, if the New Apostolic Reformation is really nothing more than a missionary society, uh, a, a loose conglomeration and network of missionaries and church planters, then you know clearly, you know, there shouldn't be any controversy. I mean, there have been missionaries. For centuries, since the you know since the Christian Church was established two thousand years ago, so you know I I mean I believe in missionaries. I've never said no missionaries don't exist. But see, notice he's defining things here in such a way that you know he's making a distinction between big A apostles and little A apostles, and little A apostles are basically missionaries and things like that. I believe we've had them through history but we haven't called them apostles. So 
I always use the same examples, you know, Hudson Taylor, China Inland Mission. I look at him as a modern-day apostle. All right, so Hudson Taylor, Chinese missionary, is an apostle. Okay, now I'm going to note that this is a really sloppy use of the word apostle. Could cause all kinds of confusion, but he's basically claiming missionaries are apostles. Okay. William Booth, with his social outreach movement and Salvation Army, especially in its early days, clearly preaching the gospel. I look at him as as a modern-day apostle or apostle of recent past. So the founder of the Salvation Army movement, uh, you know, a missionary of sorts, if you would, is uh, is an apostle, okay? For Nyesupanam in India, he doesn't use any titles. Mm-hmm. When he goes overseas and starts other ministries, he goes and helps the homeless and ministers to people. Nobody knows his name. When he goes overseas and starts other ministries, he goes and helps the homeless and ministers to people. Nobody knows his name. When he does it, he's just there to serve. But he's planted over 7,000 churches in previously unreached tribal regions, been stolen for preaching the gospel. All right, so missionary, missionary, church planter, apostle. Okay. Well, Jesus appeared to him. That's how he was saved. I look at him as a modern-day apostle. I'm not into using titles. I, I, I see it as redundant. I'd rather we didn't even put pastor in front of people's names, but that's okay. Uh, it's, it's identifying, but it's recognizing a gift and a calling. I believe we've had prophets through our church history, but haven't always. All right. So well, I'll leave off the prophet uh, discussion for another time, but clearly you kind of get the idea. So what he's saying, and th- notice that uh, Michael Brown is a member of the U.S. Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, which if we understand what he's saying here, well, all they really are is a missionary society. They are recognizing men who are called to be missionaries, see? And they're using the word apostle and apostolic in ways that are confusing. But, uh, you know, the nefarious evil critics of the NAR are just too obtuse to recognize that the only thing we've been discussing this entire time is, um, you know, missionaries. Is that really what's going on here? And again, I'm going to point out, the problem here is not that uh, critics of the NAR have been misusing the word or the phrase NAR. The problem is is that men like Michael Brown and others have been um, really vaguely misusing the word apostle. Now, let's uh, note something here. So we're going to play a little game, you know, and and, uh, we'll just, we're going to work through a few different resources here. We're going to ask the question, Big A Apostle or Little A Apostle, a.k.a. Missionary. So uh, from uh, uh, Joseph Matera's appearance on Michael Brown's uh, Line of Fire, listen to this uh, statement made by Joseph Matera, and we'll just ask ourselves, does this make sense if what they're discussing uh, are missionaries? I think that uh, these are people driven by fear. The people driven by fear, critics like you know, like myself. They're created their own bogeyman. Yeah, and uh, I don't think anybody should be afraid of true apostolic prophetic leaders that God has ordained, according to Ephesians four, to continue until there is unity in the faith and complete knowledge and fullness of the Son of God, which hasn't happened yet. So. If they're against apostolic leadership, they're fighting against God himself. All right, so if you're fighting against missionaries, you're fighting against God himself. 
Which kind of begs the question, why would anybody fight against missionaries? Why would they be opposed to missionaries? And, and if I'm opposed to missionaries and I'm fighting God himself, you know, strange, heavy-handed uh, terminology there. So if you're opposing the apostolic, you're opposing God himself. But see, when you start talking about it in terms like that, you know, it, it no longer sounds like you're talking about a missionary. Now let's go back in time to uh, the year 2014, and uh, the uh, Norwegian apostle Jean Aj Torp, and uh, he was in Rwanda. And uh, the name of the message is "God Anoints Apostles Today." You can find it on YouTube. And uh, Jean Aj Torp here is going to describe the importance of, apost- of apostles today, and say this is part of God's order. And see if what he's describing to you sounds like he's describing, you know, small a apostles, you know, missionaries. See if this uh, makes any sense in that context. Listen in. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, God said first in the church apostles. Second prophets. Third teachers. And then others. So you see there's an order in the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God to expand. We need to understand this order. Otherwise there will be much mess. But when we out of respect and love honor the work of God. We will be able to move swiftly around the world. You know, I have a spiritual father in America by the name of John Kelly. Now, John Kelly, by the way, is associated with Joseph Matera and uh, and the U.S. Council of Apostolic Leaders. So, uh, you know, I just recently watched a YouTube video where John Kelly and Joseph Matera and another apostolic leader were talking about current trends and, you know, the apostolic churches and stuff. So Apostle John Kelly, let's listen to this historical account of his apostleship and see if this makes sense if we were to just change his title from apostle to missionary, you know, because small a apostles, you know. John Kelly. He's a great man. I love him very much. I hope that Apostle Gitwaza will bring him sometime here. He's a big man too. And he used to be an American football player. He played, played professionally for the New York Jets. And he was the heavyweight champion in boxing of the state of New Jersey. John Kelly was a man, a big man. All right, we got it. Yeah. He can knock down anyone. Maybe, maybe not. not a and he had a blue ox named Babe, too. I kind of get the idea. All right. But he's strong. And you know, he has built many churches. He's a great man. And then many years ago, 10 years ago, God said to him, start a coalition of apostles in the world. You know, John Kelly is like a father. 
John Kelly ameze humu papa humu ameze humu papa wa mumuka ararirana na nawe iyo uri burire cyangwa nuseka murasekana he picked me up sometimes when i was finished sometimes he would just love me rimwe yarankundaga other times he would kick me ubunda kantera imigeri and it was good kandi ari umupapa mwiza god told him to start a coalition of apostles in the world imana iramubwira ngo tangira ubusabane bw'intumwa kwisi hose and i was there with him kandi nari kumwe nawe icyo gihe we had the first year in 2000 kwagize ubwambere mu bihumbi bibiri It was, it was exciting. Or maybe about 100 and everyone felt the excitement. So 100, you know, missionaries got together. 100 missionaries. Yeah, okay. God is doing something great. And bringing together apostles from all continents. But then God spoke to Apostle John Kelly. Imana iganiriza intumwa John Kelly. I told you to start it. Iramubwiye ati nakubwiye ngo ubitangire. But I want you to now submit to another apostle. Ariko ndashaka kubunoneho ubiha undi indi ntumwa abari ikomeza umurimo. Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner. So Kelly went to Wagner. Nuko Kelly agenda kureba Wagner. God tells me that you should lead this. Aramubwira ati Imana yambiye ngo abari wowe uyobora bino. And now I will serve you. Hanyuma gyewe ngukorere. So he knelt down. Noneho arapfukama. No you must not. Come on. You're Peter Wagner. Oh okay. I'm John Kelly. And so then, John Kelly down on his knees. Uh in front of see Peter Wagner. Have any of you ever uh gotten down on your knees in order to pledge your allegiance and servitude to a missionary you know small a apostle i mean cuz that's all we're talking about here you know you know like missionaries to china and stuff H- have any of you ever done this i i haven't I will serve you. And I will help you. And Peter Wagner said, "Okay." And then Peter Wagner has led it. You know, that's, that's the order of God. So the order of God requires me to submit and bend the knee to a missionary. You know, because I call me crazy but what he just described there sounded more to me like a big A apostle rather than a small A apostle. So uh, let's head over to uh, the uh, the website for Joseph Matera, josephmatera.org. And uh, Michael Brown has re- recommended that his listeners go to uh Joseph Matera's website and we're going to look at you know a couple of things that he's written. I'm going to make the print bigger uh, so that it's a little easier to read. The necessity of restoring apostolic ministry today, which kind of begs the question. I mean, if we're talking about small a apostles, you know, missionaries, haven't we had those all from the beginning? Why would we restore missionaries to the church? unless of course he's not talking about missionaries. Well, let's take a look. So Joseph Matera writes, since the late 1940s there has been a resurgence of attempts to activate the fivefold ministry gifts as found in Ephesians 4:11. Like I said, we'll get into this. You'll need your Bible. We're going to do some Bible study here in a minute. 
And uh, starting with the latter rain movement, which, by the way, I came out of, and it's a heretical movement, uh, in Canada, various groups have arisen proclaiming the restoration of the apostolic. Restoration. Somehow I don't think they're talking about the restoration of missionaries. Just thinking, you know. And so, and, and prophetic gifts to go along with the evangelist, pastor, and teacher gifts. The result has been the emergence of great movements of independent networks led by apostolic visionaries. So Joseph Matera, the leader of the United States Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, on his own website is saying that there is great a great movement of independent networks led by apostolic visionaries, and yet what he's describing doesn't sound at all like, you know missionaries so and which they have been exploding in asia latin america and africa which by the way the critics have been noting that and joseph matera here has just confirmed it so this apostolic movement represents the fastest growing segment of global christianity that's exactly what C. Peter Wagner said when he was alive. Furthermore, now even evangelical leaders and movements are embracing fivefold ministry language to describe church leadership. The primary reason for this is because the church is being taught by the Holy Spirit that the church has to go from a pastoral model of church to an apostolic model in leadership if we're going to replicate the amazing Jesus movement of the first few centuries of church history, which is kind of bizarre here. Uh, Because my question is, what does it mean to go from a pastoral model to a missionary model? If we're talking about church leadership here, I thought missionaries plant churches, and then it's the pastors who come in once the church is established, and continue the ministry of preaching the word, baptizing people, administering the Lord's Supper, caring for those who are ill, praying, and you know things like that. So it's weird because it sounds to me like Joseph Matera is talking about you know big A apostles rather than small A apostles. It's weird because he keeps talking in terms of restoration. All right, we're going to pause there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. More of this uh, Joseph Matera talking about a little A apostles in a big A kind of way. It's weird. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Peter, James, John, and Paul are all dead. That means there are no living apostles in the church today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select.
Joseph. And it would seem that there have been an unprecedented number of churches that have mysteriously sunk into the earth over the last two weeks. Authorities within the church have made the claim that this is the work of what they're calling the sneaky squid spirit. Scientists have analyzed the phenomenon and have made some shocking discoveries. It turns out that Pastor Chuck Pierce accidentally opened up multiple heavenly blessing portals simultaneously. By doing so, he unwittingly ripped a hole in the fabric of space-time so large that the sneaky squid spirit simply fell through the leaking, bulging sound membrane. Authorities have offered a $1 million reward to anyone who can stop it. Well, hello there. Welcome to MacGuffins. Uh, what can I do for you today? Hi, uh... I was wondering what supplies you had in stock that would help me fight the paranormal. Well, uh, see, we got here. We um, we got rock salt shotgun rounds, uh, PKE meters, EMF readers, hexes, spells, salt hula hoops, demon summoning coloring books, crucifixes, and holy water, amongst other things. Do you carry the grimoire of modern prayer? Not since it was outlawed by the Geneva Convention. Sorry. Bummer. I I noticed it looks kind of empty in here. Well, business has been booming as of late. Uh, are you going after that sneaky squid? What what you call it? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I, what what would you recommend for tackling this beast? Well, none of the items here are going to work against that monstrosity. If I were you, I'd buy Los Lobos Ministries' latest invention. What's that? Well, it's right here in the summer catalog. It is a, um, laser-guided, sneaky squid spirit homing nuclear missile. Great, I'll take one. Uh, sorry, uh, we're, <clears throat> we're, we're fresh out. Fresh out? Then why'd you even mention it? Well, if you want to order one right now, I could have it here for you in about, uh, 11 weeks. No, I, I need something today. Well, there is one thing I can sell you. What the heck is this? Glory sprinkles. Glory sprinkles? It's what I said. Is there an echo in here or something? No, I heard you. It just sounds more like a breakfast cereal than a paranormal weapon. They look like Lucky Charms. They're more like Fruit Loops, actually. This is really the best you got? Afraid so. How am I even supposed to use these? Well, uh, there's instructions on the bag. Use two or three handfuls to throw directly onto the sneaky squid spirit. Do not inhale or ingest. If ingestion occurs, please see your local physician for treatment immediately. Must be 18 or older to purchase. All right. Glory sprinkles it is, then. Happy squid hunting. Will Dylan kill the sneaky squid spirit? Will Chuck Pierce be held accountable for his crimes? Learn all of this and more on the next thrilling episode of The Sneaky Squid Spirit Trilogy! Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally 
hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you, listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that there are no apostles in the church today, because there aren't. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. And rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can click on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And, of course, if you'd like to support us by becoming a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the next portion of uh, my discussion regarding the masting of Michael Brown, part two, as we take a look at uh, the weird stuff that's been going on on his program as it relates to uh, strange definitions pertaining to uh, the word apostle and apostolic. We continue. Here we go. So truly the Protestant Reformation, which began in the 16th century, is still taking place as the Reformed Church is continually reforming itself. Evangelical leaders like Dr. Peter Wagner, who crossed over to embrace the charismatic gifts in the third wave of the 1980s, became the catalyst for the wider body of Christ, embracing this restoration. It's weird because, you know, uh, 
Michael Brown says we've always had apostles, you know, because they're missionaries. And uh, Joseph Matera is talking about the restoration of apostles. Huh. Although some of the earmarks of what Pierre Wagner called the New Apostolic Reformation have made many of us in the present restoration movement uncomfortable, such as top-down leadership, which doesn't make sense if apostles are missionaries, hyper-dominion rhetoric, which again doesn't make sense if apostles are missionaries, uh, the use of apostle as title rather than a description and the practice of laying of laying hands on leaders proclaiming them to be apostles over regions and nations, which is exactly what C. Peter Wagner did. It is still advancing because Jesus is the one building his church through the magisterium of the Holy Spirit who is pulling the whole body into the vortex of the New Testament pattern of church. Now, this is weird because you know he's saying New Testament pattern of church. And, you know, in the New Testament... The, the apostles were predominantly, you know, the of the big A variety. So um, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a little bit. But in another article, part two of this one, uh, of you know, of the the NAR and the restoration of apostolic ministry today, part two. Let me make the print bigger. We'll uh, we'll pay attention to what he's describing here, and again, ask the question: Is he describing? Big A apostles or, you know, little a, missionary apostles. So um, so the, uh, the this one begins with what God is doing today. I believe that the present embrace of the fivefold ministry of the, evan- of the evangelical pastors in the USA is going to bring a convergence between the charismatic, independent apostolic networks, evangelical networks, and ultimately even evangelical Bible-confessing denominations. The implications of this will be extraordinary. The church will go from being pastorally led to apostolically led and prophetically inspired. Now, again, you know, for instance, I'm a pastor. I'm a Lutheran pastor of a tiny conservative congregation out in the sugar beets fields of Oslo, Minnesota. And the fellow who planted the church, the missionary who worked to plant this church and others, he's long been dead. In fact, the congregation that I serve was established over 135 years ago. And uh, there, it hasn't been led by a missionary since the guy who planted the church 135-plus years ago planted it at that time in the 19th century. So the question I have is, why should my church go from being pastorally led to being led by a missionary? Because, I mean, we're talking about little a apostles, you know, right? You see, it doesn't make sense because if you're talking about a church being apostolically led, now we're talking about big A apostles, not little a. You you see what I'm saying here? So this emerging apostolic paradigm, he continues, will shift the missionary focus from planting local churches to planting movements of churches and Christ followers that will permeate every facet of society. The apostolic paradigm will shift the focus from gathering crowds on Sunday which is weird because you know you know the book of Hebrews talks about you know not forsaking the gathering together of the saints. What do we do on a Sunday? You know we're there to hear the word of God, to worship, to pray, to baptize people, to receive the Lord's supper. You know stuff like that. 
And so we're, we're going to shift the focus from that to what? To developing disciples who will manifest the reign of Christ from Monday to Saturday. I don't even know what that phrase means, um, but you know, I'm pretty sure if we're supposed to be doing that, that that equipping and developing disciples for doing such things would actually primarily be done on Sundays. Anyway, the present apostolic paradigm will restore the church back to the way of Christ and his apostles. Well, that's weird because Jesus' apostles were not apostles in the small a sense. (laughs) His apostles were apostles in the big A sense, you know, (laughs) Um, so, and then he says the present apostolic paradigm will bring a course correction to the new apostolic reformation and, uh, the view of the apostolic ministry function, not an office, an adjective, not a title. Um, so, all right. So you kind of get the idea here. And, and my question is, how is he defining apostle here? And why are we saying that missionaries needed to be restored? Because Michael Brown, you know, said, that, uh, you know, we've always had apostles and they're missionaries, you know, missionaries to China, missionaries who start the Salvation Army and stuff like that. So in order to kind of wrap our heads around this, we're going to have to do some Bible study. Grab your Bibles if you want to just watch along on my screen. You are welcome to. I will be working from the English Standard uh, Version, ESV, uh, but you could do this with any good modern translation. But uh, we're going to begin by noting uh, the biblical requirements for an apostle. And uh, this is important because when we look at the biblical text, we will note that uh, that this is the definition for a big A apostle, big A apostle. And these were the guys who launched and led the church in the uh, in the opening century of this of you know of this era, if you would. And so we read in Acts chapter one, verse one, the, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Apostolos, by the way, the Greek word. Oh boy, is that tiny. <laughs> Let me make that a little bit bigger. Okay, apostolos. It, it means one, a, a messenger without extraordinary status, a delicate, an envoy, or a messenger. That would be your little a apostle. And so if somebody is sent, they are sent by somebody else. They are an emissary, a delegate, an envoy, a messenger. So if you were in the ancient world to show up to somebody's house and say, I am an apostle, they would say, who sent you? Because you're representing somebody else. And we're going to note that this use is used in Scripture. And then messengers with extraordinary status, especially if God's messengers are envoys, which would be like, you know, the apostles. And so we're going to note here that Jesus had chosen men that he sent. They were sent ones. They were apostles. He had chosen and sent them. Well, so note that here. So big A apostles are sent by Jesus. And so he presented himself alive to them, his apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now fast forwarding to verse 15 in Acts chapter 1. We read in those days, 
Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, these scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. That would be the 30 pieces of silver that he acquired for uh, betraying Christ. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And everyone said, ooh. And so it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadalma, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Big A apostles have an office. So one of the men who have uh, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up, one of these men must become with us uh, a witness to his resurrection. So they're going to choose from those who were around for all of Jesus' teaching. Uh, when you know from the time of his baptism until the time of his ascension, really. And uh, this is somebody who has to be an eyewitness, have with their own eyes witnessed the resurrection of Christ. And so they put forward two fellows, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So the Lord chose Matthias. So if you want to boil it down to two of the most basic requirements for an apostle, you have to visibly seen the Lord Jesus with your own eyes. You are an eyewitness to the resurrection Oh, and Jesus has to have chosen you to be one of his apostles because an apostle is an emissary, a sent one, sent by somebody else. Again, the question is, you know, if you say you're an apostle, the question is, who sent you? Now, regarding the apostle Paul, we're going to note, let me close BDAG here, close that, there we go. We're noting the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul talks about his apostleship explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 3. Paul, writing about the gospel, says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen and asleep, and then he appeared to James, and uh, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Okay, so you're gonna note last of all, yeah, that little last of all phrase, you know, and the last, it, it kind of actually implies that after the apostle Paul, there, yeah, Jesus ain't picking anymore apostles. That's the point. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So the apostle Paul, eyewitness to the resurrection, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, 
Um, and, uh, and so he's, and Jesus particularly, specifically chose him to be an apostle. So when we look at the openings of, uh, Paul's different epistles, Romans one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Galatians one one Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The apostle Paul is an apostle sent by Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians one one Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. Paul, 1 Corinthians, uh, 1, 2 Corinthians one one an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Uh, and Timothy, our brother, Ephesians 1, one Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, Colossians 1, one Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So you get the idea. So, you know, in order to be an apostle in that truest sense of apostle, you have to be chosen by Jesus to be an apostle, and uh, along with it, you will actually, with your own physical eyes, be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, and the Apostle Paul clearly fits that category. Now, the word apostle, in its smaller sense, as a messenger, an envoy, or a delegate, one who is sent by another uh, to be a messenger, also appears in Scripture. And let me give you three instances where that happens. In Philippians 2.25, it says, I have thought it necessary, Paul writing, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, your apostolos, and minister to my need. So you're going to note that in this occurrence, Epaphroditus was a messenger sent by the church at Philippi. That doesn't make him an apostle, nor does it even make him a missionary. It just makes him, you know, one who is sent to deliver a message, which is why the ESV translates apostolos there as messenger. 2 Corinthians 8.23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. Titus, by the way, is not an apostle. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, uh, the glory of Christ. So you're going to note that the churches, different individual congregations, would send apostles, messengers, out and they weren't considered at all like the the twelve at all. In, in you know a messenger in this sense is an envoy and a delegate. And then you're going to note they're not even talking about them being missionaries, but you know they're just an official messenger from the church to deliver a message. John thirteen sixteen, Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger apostle greater than the one who sent him." So you're going to note. In order for somebody to be an apostle, in even the smallest sense, they're sent by somebody else to deliver a message. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why a sloppy use of the term apostle through the ages has been referred to missionaries. Missionaries, though, are those who have the gift of evangelism. They are not really apostles in that sense, and I think it's you actually torture the word apostle if you're using it in that way, and that's not how... Uh, you know, that's not how the first century understood uh, an apostle to be. An apostle is one who was sent by another. The the apostles, big A apostles, were sent by Jesus and were, and were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Small A apostles were all over the place. They were messengers sent by another to deliver a message. And so, again, they always, if you showed up, 
Somebody says, and you say, I'm an apostle. Somebody, the immediate question is, who sent you? And the apostle Paul makes it clear he was sent by Jesus. Now, two passages then in question then when we look at Ephesians chapters 2 and 4, uh, vital that we take a look at them at, in context. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So here we see in Ephesians 2 that the church itself is built on the foundation, or the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, when you build a house, you don't lay the foundation again and again and again and again. The foundation is none other than the apostles and the prophets. And this is talking about apostles in the big sense. You know, the, and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the apostles and the prophets are the ones who have given us the scriptures themselves, all right? So uh, Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. So the idea then is, is that Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that apostles and prophets, and think of the apostle and the prophets as being like Isaiah, Malachi, Jeremiah, you know, Amos, the, you know, guys like this, uh, the, the apostles and the prophets, that's the foundation that the household of God is built on. These are the guys who wrote the scriptures for us. Mm-hmm. And then we see in Ephesians 4.11 that God or Christ gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, men like Michael Brown, you heard him talk this way, and Joseph Matera also already talked this way, that, that because it says, for the work of the ministry, of the building of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, that that means that there has to be apostles ongoing. Oh, contraire. That's not the case at all. It just says God gave apostles and prophets to equip the saints. Now, let me ask you this. Are the apostles and the prophets, you know, Peter, Paul, John, are they still equipping the saints? The answer is yes, they are. And there's a reason for this, and that is is because the church has always considered itself to be apostolic. In fact, let's talk about what that means, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at some other uh, stuff here. But uh, if you are familiar with the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed is an ancient creed, but this creed has its predecessor in what's called the rule of faith. We'll talk about that in a minute. Nicene Creed hammered out at the Council of Nicaea in the early part of the 4th century, designed really to combat the Arian heresy which had uh, invaded and decimated much of the church. And we read these important words in the Nicene Creed, in the third portion of it, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. One holy, Catholic, 
and apostolic church. Now, before you have a knee-jerk reaction and go, the word Catholic, yeah, I I, I get it. Um, I'm going to show you from the writings of the church father Irenaeus what that means. uh, A proper way of thinking about it is the word universal, because this is a religion that is for all human beings, Jew and Gentile alike, people in all nations. But you're going to note that all the way back then, they talked about the church being apostolic. But what did they mean by it? Did they mean that there were ongoing apostles? Nope, not at all. And to prove this, we are going to go to um, Irenaeus' work. Uh, A better translation of it would be against heresies. And in in his work against heresies, there is a there's a portion of it where he discusses what is known as the rule of faith. The rule of faith is an early version of the Nicene Creed, kind of not really well hammered out, and so it's a little bit verbose. But the verbosity of it helps us understand what the word apostolic means. But let's take a look at uh, both of the paragraphs as it relates to uh, the rule of faith so you can kind of see what's going on here. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. So for a church to be apostolic, it is for them to teach the same faith and the same doctrines that the apostles taught to their disciples and that they learned from their disciples. So has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the birth from a virgin and the passion and the resurrection from the dead and the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord and his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father to gather all things in one and to raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race, in order that Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess to him, and that he should execute his judgment towards all, that he may send spiritual wickedness, and the angels who transgressed and became apostates, together with the ungodly and the unrighteous and the wicked, and profane among men into everlasting fire, but may, in the exercise of his grace, confer immortality on the righteous and holy and those who have kept his commandments and have persevered in his love, uh, some from the beginning of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance, and may surround them with everlasting glory. As I have already observed, the church, having received this preaching and this faith, from whom? From the apostles. Although scattered throughout the whole world, yet as if occupying but one house carefully preserves it. She also believes these points of doctrine just as if she had but one soul and one in the same heart, and she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down with perfect harmony as if she possessed only one mouth. 
For although the languages of the world are dissimilar, yet the import of the tradition is one and the same. For the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything different, nor do those in Spain, nor those in Gaul, nor those in the East, nor those in Egypt, nor those in Libya. By the way, this is what it means to be Catholic. Nor those which have been established in the central regions of the world, but as the sun, that cre- uh, the, the sun, that creature of God, is one and the same throughout the whole world, so also the preaching of the truth shineth everywhere and enlightens all men that are willing to come to a knowledge of the truth. Nor will any one of the rulers in the churches, however highly gifted, he may be in point of eloquence, teach doctrines different from these. For no one greater than no one is greater than the master. Nor, on the other hand, will he who is deficient in power of expression inflict injury on the tradition. For the faith being ever one and the same, neither does one who is able at length to dis, uh, to discourse regarding it make any addition to it. Nor does one who can say but little diminish it. So, a little bit of a long sentence there, but now you know what Catholic means. It means universal. It's the same universal faith. But we also know what apostolic means, and that means that, uh, that it's, the, it's the faith and the doctrines handed down by the apostles. So when you see in the Nicene Creed that we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, it's the same doctrines and the same teachings, the same faith that the apostles had passed on to their disciples who then passed it on to their disciples, and on and on and on. I think you kind of get the idea. So then coming back to this, this is explicitly taught, by the way, you kind of get this idea from Acts 2.42, after the day of Pentecost, the new converts to Christianity, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So in other words, the apostles are still discipling us today. They are still equipping us today. How are they doing so? Through the written word of God. They're still discipling the nations. Matthew is, Mark is, Luke, John, all these fellows. All of this apostolic doctrine is continuing to go forward. And because the scriptures are the rule and measure of sound doctrine and what is considered good theology as opposed to heresy, the apostles still rule over the church through their doctrine and teaching that is handed down to us in Scripture. The only place you can go right now to hear apostolic doctrine and to see it and learn it and properly understand it is the written Word of God. So the church has always considered itself to be apostolic. And so when we come back then to Ephesians 4... The idea here is is that the apostles and the prophets have done their thing. They are the foundation of the church. And moving forward, we have evangelists, pastors, and teachers who teach to us, give a living voice to, the doctrine and the faith that the apostles and the prophets have handed down to us in the written word of God. The apostles are still equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Peter hasn't finished his job because his words still speak. They still teach. You kind of get the idea. Until we attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I think you get the idea. So what we're hearing from uh, Joseph Matera and what we're hearing from Michael Brown 
um, doesn't sound like missionaries. It sounds like big A apostles, and they're the ones who are adding all kinds of craziness to it. Now, I want you to listen now to Joseph Matera, and this is the sermon that, by the way, we review in hour two of uh, this episode of Fighting for the Faith. Um, so just look for today's episode, May 15th, 2018 over at the Fighting for the Faith website. I want you to listen to Joseph Matera and what he has to say, and you see if this makes sense, if what he's talking about is a small a missionary. And uh, boy, this tells you a lot also about their <clears throat> their love, and you have to put that in air quotes, for uh, sound biblical teaching and training. Listen to this. And then we find in chapter 4, uh, after a fantastic miracle, a guy who is lame for 38 years was healed. This is Acts chapter 4, by the way. And it caused a big, uh, you know, a, a, a big, uh, you know, celebration in the streets and got the religious leaders all upset because they were preaching the name of Jesus and they were thinking, wow, you know, they're... Uh, laying this man's blood on us. And every time something happens in the name of Jesus, whom we crucified or part of the crucifixion, uh, the blame is going to go on them because he's doing all these great healings. So they were really upset. They called Peter and John and they started interrogating them, finding out what's going on. We told you not to do this. And this is what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. He said, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The stone has now become the cornerstone, the one you rejected. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here Peter is lecturing and interpreting the Old Testament to a rabbi, to a scholar, because when he's talking about the stone, the builder rejected, that is a psalm that David wrote, Psalm 118. So what he's doing is he's teaching this learned religious leader about the Messiah. And verse 13 is very telling. It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized they, that they had been with Jesus. Now, a little bit of a note here, and that is that uh, what he's describing here is the, the whole sermon's about what the apostolic church is. And he's looking at big A apostles to talk about what should be the hallmarks of the apostolic church Today And so because in Acts chapter 4, uh, the apostles were unlettered men, uh, I would note that the Apostle Paul was definitely a lettered fellow, but because they were unlettered men, listen to what he thinks should happen in the church today, and we'll note the kind of the weird, quirky, spooky thing that he says along the way. You remember in John chapter 7, they were astonished. Jesus spoke with authority, and he says he had no letters, he had no training, no formal training, right? And so here Peter is teaching this scholar, 
And they were shocked at the power, shocked at the healing, and they observed that they were uneducated, but, but they had been with Jesus. Now, what does that teach us about the apostolic church? Well, these apostles were not trained formally in the religious rabbinic school that taught the Torah and the tradition of the elders. They were not trained by professionals. They were trained as they did life with Jesus. They were trained in a community of faith. The apostolic church trains their own. We don't have to ship people out to Bible school. We don't. Mm-hmm. So apostolic leaders shouldn't go to Bible school, shouldn't go to seminary. Okay. Don't have to ship people out to seminary. Matter of fact, when you send somebody out away from your church to be trained to be a pastor, for three or four years they have no pastor. All they have is professors who don't really care about them. Just what are you talking about? I mean, when I was in seminary, I had a pastor. What are you talking about here? They're doing their job. They're nice people, but their job is not to pastor them, but to give them knowledge. And for three years, they have no covering, no apostolic authority, no community. Whoa, 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 whoa. They have no covering, no apostolic authority. So when somebody goes to Bible college, they have no apostolic authority. I thought that Michael Brown said that missionaries are apostles. Why would somebody going to seminary need to submit themselves to the apostolic authority of a missionary? You see, it doesn't make sense. And the reason why, it's not that the critics of the NAR have been, you know, been sloppy in their use of the phrase NAR. The problem is, is that the people in the NAR are sloppy with the word apostle. And I would point this out, is that you're going to note that nowhere in the New Testament, and I mean this, nowhere in the New Testament, do you see a list laying out, in the future, apostles, here are the qualifications to be an apostle? Nope. <laughs> Not at all. Um, you know, Instead, you have the pastoral epistles and the qualifications to be a pastor. Now, a little bit of a note here. Joseph Matera is a kind of fellow who tries to argue that uh, the, the bishops of the uh, Roman Catholic Church were the equivalent of apostles back in the day, and that is absolutely patently false. Scripture uses the same word for elder and pastor and bishop interchangeably. I'll show it to you. Uh, Paul writing to Titus in um, in Titus chapter 1, uh, it says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, This that's presbyteroi, in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, episkopos. Uh-huh. That's the same word for bishop. You're going to note, presbyteroi and bishop are interchangeable, and this is a pastoral a letter, a pastoral epistle. So the idea here is, is that his claim that bishops are the, were the ancient church's version of apostles, patently false, not true at all. For an overseer, an episcopos, a bishop, as God's steward, must be above reproach. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. You're going to note, this is one of the lists given in the New Testament for the qualifications and responsibilities of pastors. There is no list like this at all anywhere in the New Testament for the ongoing apostles. An apostle must be this, must be that, must be have this, and must do this. Nowhere in Scripture do you see any example of a list outlining what apostles are supposed to do, and the reason for that is quite simple. Because the a term apostle is referring to the big A apostles. And there are no apostles. There haven't been any apostles on planet Earth since the apostle John died. And since then, though, the apostles still continue to teach us through the written word of God, and the church has always considered itself to be apostolic. And Irenaeus did a very fine job of laying that out for us in the second century, what it means to be apostolic as well as Catholic in the true sense. So here's the what it boils down to, is that Michael Brown and Joseph Matera and others are basically trying to demonize the critics of the NAR. And by demonizing them, making them look like a bunch of, you know, tinfoil pyramid hat wearing conspiracy wingnuts and hypercritics who have who have done a sloppy job of defining what the NAR is and does and who's in it and stuff. Um, when in reality, it's the people in the NAR and guys affiliated with it via the five-fold ministry, you know, because uh, Michael Brown's a five-folder. He, he's, he doesn't, he's not NAR in the classic sense, because he had, he had issues with some of the things that uh, Peter Wagner taught. But the reality is this, he, he still believes in apostles. But the thing is, is that what he said an apostle is, is not what Joseph Matera is describing. Joseph Matera isn't describing missionaries. He's describing people in church leadership, governing the church. In fact, he bemoans the fact that guys who go off to seminary, they not only do they not have pastors, they don't have any apostolic authority or covering over them while they're in, in seminary. You know, this is this is absurd. And so the problem here is not that the critics of the NAR haven't done their homework in rightly defining the NAR. The problem is that Michael Brown and others haven't done their homework in defining what the Bible teaches regarding who an apostle is and why <laughs> and what an apostle does and all this kind of stuff. What's really funny is that uh, Michael Brown actually uh, refers to a book on the apostolic by a fellow by the name of Katz, last name of Katz. And the thing is absolutely atrocious. It is, uh, it is literally uh, not even lucid in its descri- describing of what an apostle is because it never defines it. it, never defines an apostle at all. So I think you get the point. You know, the error here lies with Michael Brown and Joseph Matera and others and their vague, weird machinations and inability 
to actually point us to biblical texts that clearly define what a t- what today's apostle would do. And I would note this, that if we were just to go back to maybe Ephesians 4, 11, it says that Christ or God gave us apostles and prophets. Yes, we have, we have them, and they're still continuing to teach us today through the words. And evangelists, that's what a missionary is. You see, um, guys like Hudson Taylor, they were missionaries, not apostles. They, were, they had the gift of evangelists. They were evangelists going out and preaching the gospel in places where it had never been preached before. That's what a part of what evangelists do. So Hudson Taylor, according to Ephesians 4.11, wasn't an apostle. Hudson Taylor was an evangelist. Yeah, I think you get the idea. All right. Hopefully you found this helpful. I understand it was a wee bit long, but uh, the idea here is is that I needed to take the time to actually provide some biblical clarity for the word apostle because that's the one thing that Joseph Matera as well as uh, Michael Brown and others have actually failed to do. They continue to play fast and loose with the definition of apostle, and you never can seem to quite pin it down with any specificity or accuracy. And of course, I would just basically say this, if you believe in ongoing apostles today, show me in Scripture. Who's qualified to be an apostle? Who's not qualified to be an apostle? What are the duties of an apostle and the responsibilities of an apostle? And how does one go about becoming qualified to become one, according to Scripture? And you'll quickly see that that's not there at all which is the reason why they can't actually clearly define what an apostle is or does today. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. When we come back... The entirety of Joseph Matera's sermon, The Apostolic Church. We're going to see uh, if he defines uh, apostles as uh, big A or little A. We'll be right back. Gibberish is not one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches.
Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Alright, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. This is going to be a long episode because this is a long sermon. Had to lay some track. Discernment work and good proper theology takes time. All right, let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the U.S. Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, convening apostle himself, Dr. Joseph Matera. The name of the message is the Apostolic Church. And apparently we're going to be hearing about all the things the Bible teaches about what we need in order to be an apostolic church. And uh, we're going to note that the uh, people he's looking at are the big A apostles. Yeah. (laughs) Not the small A. And we're going to note that he says, don't go to seminary, don't go to Bible college. Yeah, no apostolic leaders are made in-house. They're not made by going to learn proper biblical exegesis. The biblical language is nonsense like that. Yeah, that's a little later in the sermon. So let's get to it without any further ado. Here's Joseph Matera and the Apostolic Church. What a blessing, what a blessing to be here. What a joy. Praise God. Wow, I could have just sat there and just worshipped. We didn't need to have any preaching tonight. Sometimes the the music is all the preaching you need. All the worship and just amazing. Well, uh, it's so good to be with you. I'm... Uh, back from South Africa one week. I was there for two weeks. 
And uh, we had a great, great time there. Met some amazing people. And uh, But I always like being here, being at home. And uh, most of you know me and Apostle Alvarez go back from uh, maybe from the mid-90s. So we're talking about 20 years now. And Is he referring to missionary Alvarez or Apostle Alvarez? I'm assuming that uh, Apostle Alvarez is a, is a missionary since he's a small-A apostle. Yeah. And I always uh, get blessed being here. And at one point in our life, we were coming here almost every Sunday night because we needed some encouragement. So in the late 80s, I would come and I'd bring my whole staff because we were struggling. We really needed help. So <laughs> we got it here. And I always thank God for your pastor for where he was always with us, no matter what happened. And uh, it's just always great to have those kind of friends. So tonight with me, uh, I've got some of my spiritual children with me, and I've got Carlos here, Carlos Rojas. Uh, I've got Robert and Anne Louise, and Marie Lopez. And then I have Pastor John Picarillo from House on the Rock in Staten Island. So he's here, so let's just give them a hand. And on outside, we have two of my five books. One is Ruling in the Gates. I always had this sold out before I got here. Finally, I just I bought about, uh, ordered 3,000 several months ago. So I'm almost sold out again. But uh, this book will just change your whole mindset. It'll get you from just understanding. Is anyone else offended by the fact that he sells his books from the pulpit? Uh, the gospel is an individual salvation thing to understanding the breadth of the kingdom of God. And it will just really open your eyes. There's not that many that I brought tonight. So uh, then this is the last book I wrote, Travail to Prevail. It's about the kind of prayer that's birthing prayer. I've never seen a book written on this subject. This is the kind of prayer that I'd probably do the most out of any other prayer. And so it gets into uh, the... Yeah, I think you have to take spiritual Lamaze classes before you start praying those prayers, apparently. Theology of this, but most of it is personal stories. Uh, and it's also showing you some of the historical references and how every revival had this kind of prayer before it. And uh, again, I've never read a book that just talked about this. So I think this kind of book will bring an impartation of prayer like you've never seen before. So The book will bring an impartation. Mm -hmm. Sounds like an unverifiable product claim to me. So when you read it, it's a very, very intense book. Uh, I love reading the book even though I wrote it. I've, re I've read it several times because it just really inspires me. So this is Travail to Prevail. What I want to do is talk about the apostolic church and very rarely do I preach the same message I preached in my own church because I, I got you know I try to hear from the Lord everywhere I go and I just felt like the Lord showed me preach the same message that you preached so he's been commanded by God to preach this message this is comes all the way from the top you know God said you got to preach this so uh, there's some kind of divine inspiration going on for this apparent message. In your own house today. 
Um, and so what I'm going to do is talk about the apostolic church, and we're going to deal with the Jerusalem church model. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you. The Jerusalem church model, what is that? Thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to be a blessing as both of our houses, the one in Resurrection in Brooklyn and the love of Jesus here in Orange, our apostolic churches. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to frame the apostolic model, the apostolic template tonight. And we'd be encouraged and we'd know what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to do is just run quickly through several portions of Scripture in the book of Acts. Um, And so we're going to talk about the first apostolic church. This is the mother church of us all. Some people think the mother church is the, the church in the Vatican in Rome. No, the mother church is the Jerusalem church. That's where every other church came from and was birthed out of. And there were two apostolic churches that are key churches in the book of Acts. And one is the Jerusalem church and the other is the Antioch church. I'm actually going to be preaching on the Antioch church next week. So apparently two different apostolic churches. Yet when we read Irenaeus, an apostolic church is one that believes the same faith and doctrines that the apostles delivered. None of the uh, first century Christians would have talked about two different, quote, apostolic churches. In my own house. Um, And so... These two churches basically epitomize the model of an apostolic church. Now, when we say apostolic, we're not talking about a denominational name, because there are some denominations called the apostolic faith, etc. We're talking about a church that was led by the original apostles. So when we think about, for example, the Roman Catholic Church today, the root of that church is not in the first century because it doesn't follow the biblical principles of the New Testament pattern. The root of the Roman Catholic Church is the medieval church from the Middle Ages on. The root of the Eastern Orthodox Church starts in the third century. The root of the Pentecostal movement is from the Holiness movement of the 19th century. The root of the revivalist preaching and movements that we have, like from Billy Graham and all that, uh, started in the 17th century with a guy named Nicholas von Zinzendorf and the Moravians. And they basically started what's called a pietistic movement, and that gave birth to a revivalistic movement, which meant that they preached individual salvation and having an experience with God as opposed to just joining a church and understanding creeds. So they really emphasize the personal experience with God. Uh, And so there are roots of every kind of expression of Christianity that we could think about. But the great thing... Yet he's describing a different Christianity, different Christianities. And yet Irenaeus talked about that all the churches were the same. It's weird. Yeah, and they taught the same doctrine. So isn't it fascinating? He's not describing a church that's Catholic in the right sense. He's describing something very different. The thing about this church and, and many, many churches that are exploding across the world is the root of our church is in the first century. 
We are modeling our churches after the New Testament. Pastor Jason doesn't waste his time reading. All right, so they're modeling their churches after the New Testament. In that sense, then apostles would be not little a apostles, you know, missionaries. They would be big A apostles. Isn't that weird? Reading a lot of different things. He spends most of his time reading the Bible because he wants to pattern this church after the New Testament. And so that's the great thing about it. And, and the denominational movements are dying all over the world. In New York City, uh, there are a hundred Catholic churches closing uh, in schools. Uh, in my neighborhood in Sunset Park in Bay Ridge, it's littered with huge cathedrals that have 20 people in it or they're being turned into condos. There were once Lutheran churches and Methodist churches. The denominational time is its not that it's going to end. There will always be denominations, but it's its dying. It's its reached its plateau, and it's, it's declining. What is exploding across the world, and I do a lot of traveling, whether it's South Africa, whether it's... So notice what he said. What is exploding across the world? What would that be? Oh, you know, apostolic churches with, you know, apostles. And yet he's describing... Those, these churches in terms of like big A apostles, not little a. Continent of Africa, Latin America, Asia, um, India, wherever I go, the apostolic is what's moving. The global expansion of Christianity is in the apostolic church. And so God is bringing the whole church back to the first century model. So for us to do that, we really need to understand. what The first century model, that had living big A apostles. Mm-hmm, yeah. Was the two major apostolic church models like? So we know how to model our own churches. And so as we go back to the book of Acts, we find, of course, that there were 11 original apostles left after Judas uh, betrayed the Lord and left his place as an apostle. And these 11 plus the others who met with Jesus were commanded by Jesus to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, right before Jesus ascended, we're just going to go to the book of Acts chapter 1. It's very important that we see where the disciples were at at this point. You would think after three and a half years, they understood what they were supposed to do. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is telling them to wait for the promise of the Father. And uh, in verse 6, this is what their response was. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking the reason why he rose from the dead was to bring political power back to Israel. They still didn't get it after three and a half years. And there's still Christians today that are focusing all their ministry on Israel. It still hasn't changed. Not that I don't think that that's an important thing, having the nation of Israel, but I'm not focusing my whole ministry on that. And they were at that place. They were focusing their whole ministry, the resurrection of Christ, on the political power and existence of a nation, Israel. They still didn't get it. And so what Jesus said to them was that it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power 
after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the focus isn't just Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem, but then it has to go to other parts of the world. So he was saying that the key is the Holy Spirit, to be imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit. Right after that, he ascended into heaven. So he rose from the dead, walked on the earth for 40 days, and then after 40 days and nights, he ascended into heaven. So now there were 10 days left before the day of Pentecost, because Pentecost means 50, after Passover. So for 10 days, what did they do? Well, it says in chapter 1, verse 12, after Jesus ascended into heaven, it said they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olive, which is near Jerusalem, and they entered into the upper room where they were staying. And what did they do there? In verse 14, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Someone say prayer. prayer. And for 10 days they prayed. 10 days. People only focus on the next chapter, the day of Pentecost. They think, well, it's just all about that one moment of time. But no, it was 10 days. And during that 10 days, it says they didn't just pray. Prayer was the focus, but they dialogued. They were getting downloads from the Holy Ghost. Holy yeah, nowhere in uh, Acts chapter 1 are you going to hear anything about them receiving downloads and things like that. The verse in question is Acts chapter 1, verse 14. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Yeah. And uh, right after that verse uh, comes the passage referring to how they replaced uh, Judas and filled the empty apostolic office that he vacated by his death. So, uh, yeah, already... Um, Dr. Matera is um, engaging in a form of Bible twisting known as eisegesis, reading something into the biblical text that literally isn't there at all. He's adding to the text. Weird. Yet he claims that God is the one who told him to deliver this message. Again, he's apparently preached it more than once. Holy Spirit was doing three things during that ten days, and this would determine when they'd be ready to receive the baptism. Yeah, nothing in Acts chapter 1 or 2 about, you know, them making themselves ready to receive the baptism. For, three, for 10 days, Holy Spirit was reminding them of the things that Jesus said. That's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to remind you of everything I said, John 14 and 16. And yes, and that reminding helped the apostles write the scriptures. And I'll tell you things to come. So first thing the Holy Spirit was doing was reminding them of the words of the gospel. The second thing the Holy Spirit was doing was now that Jesus rose from the dead, what are the implications of his words? It was now interpreting the gospel in light of the resurrection. Uh, yeah, no, no text says that. You're sticking it in there. Third thing was he was empowering them so that they would go from being cowards to having courage, turning their fear into faith. Because what good is understanding the gospel if you don't have the courage to go out and do something about it? So for 10 days, there was a combination of prayer, download, dialogue, prayer, download, dialogue, comparing the scriptures. Uh, we see in chapter uh, 1, verse 15, it says, in those days, meaning during... 
that 10 day period, Peter stood up and he began to talk about uh, how they had to do something to replace Judas. So it wasn't just straight prayer. There was a download. There was response. There was di- yeah, again nothing about downloads mentioned in dialogues and stuff. Yeah, weird. Do you have a different version of the Book of Acts than the one we've got? I'm curious. Dialogue. So for ten days, God was getting them in one accord and getting them to understand what they ought to do now that Jesus rose from the dead. And he had to change a lot of their thinking away from the political Israel thing now to the implications of the resurrection. After 10 days, they were ready. Now, we have to understand... No, the text doesn't say that they were now finally ready after 10 days. Yeah, um, in fact, since Jesus chose the Feast of Pentecost for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit... That kind of argues for that was always the plan all along, and no text actually says that they were made ready by their prayers to finally receive the Holy Spirit. They were tarrying uh, the way Jesus told them to. Yeah, just so fascinating that uh, how he's just adding to the biblical text and nobody there is noticing it. It's as if they're not paying attention at all or Learn. They know nothing about how to actually spot somebody who's adding to Scripture, which is exactly what he's doing. And one thing, the church was born out of a prayer meeting. I don't care how much strategy you have. I don't care how much marketing you have, how big your building is, how nice your carpet is. At the end of the day, you're not praying. You're not going to get there. Why? Because... He told them they had to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So in other words, we had a, we're called to, to our communities, right? But what he's saying is before you could go to the earth, you got to get to heaven. And I don't mean physically getting to heaven. What on earth? This is nonsense. You need to have heaven's download. You need to have heaven's perspective. No, there's nothing in there about you need a heaven download thingy. That's just nonsense. We need to be immersed in heaven before we could ever be effective on the earth. And so the early church was born out of a prayer meeting, meaning they had to get first with God before they could reach men. And when that 10-day period satisfied God, when they had the proper download... When it satisfied God, no text says that either. Then, in chapter 2, it said the day of Pentecost fully came. They were at one place. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the whole place. And they began speaking in other tongues. And they began speaking in the language of the Parthians, the Medes, the Persians, all the different uh, languages that were represented Uh, in Jerusalem at that time during this Feast of Pentecost. And so what the Holy Spirit was saying immediately is, I don't want you just to speak the language of the Jew. I want you to speak the language of everybody in the earth. In other words, the gospel is not just for one culture, not just for one people. You don't stay in Jerusalem. It's not to stay in your own comfort zone. Don't stay with your own ethnic people. Don't stay with people that just look like you, who talk like you, cook like you, dress like you. The gospel is for everybody. And so what we need to do is speak the language of the people. We need to think biblically, but speak secularly. But we need to speak the language of the people, not just religious language, but the language of the people. 
And so immediately the Holy Spirit started giving them a hint that this gospel is for every nation, right? And, uh, and then we find that Peter preached and his first message resulted in the birth of a megachurch. The sociologists and missiologists define a megachurch as any church that has 2,000 people or more. Well, they had 3,000 after the first message. Can you imagine? If our church just gained 100 in one week, I'd have a nervous breakdown. They gained 3,000. But they had 11 apostles that were able to handle that. So they had uh, 3,000 saved in one day. And this is what they did. It says in chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Some would say apostles' doctrine. Now listen to what he does with this. Yeah, so the text that basically says that uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, which are you know kind of the hallmarks of the church. The apostles' doctrine is literally what we've inherited. Uh, remember the quote from Irenaeus about you know that what they had received from the apostles and their disciples. They haven't tampered with or changed or touched or anything of that sort. So the apostles' doctrine, that's big A apostles, not little a apostles. And the apostles' doctrine, where we find that today? In the New Testament. That's the only place you can go to find it, to hear it, and that is what defines an apostolic church. It's one that follows the doctrine of the apostles. But uh, watch what he does with this. This is really creative and terribly wrong. Then it said, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. So... It's not an accident. The first thing they focused on was the apostles' doctrine. Why? Because the apostles received the download from the Lord for 10 days. They were able to reinterpret why they lived, what they were about. It was not now just about Israel. It was not now just about politics. not just about Israel having a power. And they uh, received the input from God. And now what they had to do to make fellowship purposeful and to make prayer effective, they had to now teach the people. You see, if you pray without the apostles' doctrine, your prayer is just ritualistic and you're babbling. If you are Notice how he's not defining the apostles' doctrine as that which we find in Scripture. No, he's talking about apostolic churches today. So we need to follow the apostles' doctrine in the sense that we we need apostolic churches where we have apostles who are getting downloads. That's literally what he's he's implying. Fellowshipping without the apostles' doctrine, then your fellowship lacks purpose. And a lot of Christians they have a lot of fellowship, but nothing comes out of it. And so it's not an accident that it says that they had the apostles' doctrine, then fellowship breaking of bread, and prayer. Why? Because the apostles' doctrine frames everything else. And without the the teaching, without being connected to teaching, you do not know how to pray as you ought. You don't even know what you're doing in church. Eighty percent of the people in church on Sunday probably don't even know why they're there. And that's why you have to have strong teaching. That's why Pastor Jason 
and, and other churches that are apostolic, they focus on discipleship. They focus on teaching, focus on training leaders. They focus on equipping people. Because if you're not trained, if you don't have the teaching, then everything else, uh, you know, you, you're, not, you're missing the mark in everything else you do. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That is to say, the people who spent the most time with Jesus, the people who had the power of the Holy Spirit, the people who knew why they were there, what the purpose was, they taught. And they made sure everybody was under that teaching. They didn't just have laying on of hands. They didn't just have worship. They didn't have great, just have great experience in the presence of God. They had teaching. That was the first thing they focused on was the apostles' teaching. And then the fellowship, the breaking of bread. Uh, and then it says, uh, we'll skip down to um, verse 46. And it says, day by day they attended the temple together and they broke bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And so the amazing thing about this apostles doctrine and this incredible apostolic church was they didn't just affect people in the temple on Sunday, for example, but it made everything they did sacred so that even the mundane things in their life became a celebration of sacredness. Having a meal was now... Yeah, the meal referred to there is sacred because it's the Lord's Supper. Yeah, just, you know, the breaking of bread has to do with the Lord's Supper. Now done with gratitude, with awe, and with generous hearts. They were glad, had generous hearts... Because it says, not only did they have a meal in their house, but they broke bread. Meaning that even their meal was pointing to the resurrection of Christ. Pointing if it's the Lord's Supper, it actually points to his death and his, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Pointed to the Lord's Supper. So the power of a church is not just how good your Sunday meetings are. It's how it affects your family life, how it affects the routines of your life. You can't just look for the great lightning to strike on Sunday and the great signs and wonders. The most important way you could tell how much you're being affected by the gospel is how it affects your everyday average routines. Having dinner, man, doing that unto the Lord, work school, if you're a student, your neighbors, whatever it is. And so the proof of the effect of the gospel is not how you act on Sunday, it's how you act on Monday. It's how it affects your family life. Yeah, the things he's saying actually are not even valid points from the text. He's not engaging in sound exegesis at all. And it says they did all this with glad and generous hearts, and you know what it also says? It's profound. It said they were continually praising God and having favor with all the people. What does that mean? That means that if you are Christ-centered in your house, you will have favor with your neighbors. They don't think you're weird. The world is looking for authenticity. 
The world is looking for real. Yeah, it's weird because Scripture literally says that um, the world will hate us. Christ says that the world will persecute us. And that if the world loves us, then we're actually of the world. Yeah, so what he's saying here is not taking into consideration cross-references that actually say the exact opposite of what he's saying. Faith. The world is sick of the religious shenanigans that go on in the name of Jesus. And if we are Christ-centered and if our families are imbued with the presence and power of God, and if even the routines of our life, we do it with joy, and it's a celebration of Christ's lordship and the sacredness of life that he's given us. Even the unbelievers, because it says they had favor with all the people, meaning not only those in the church, those outside the church. So we're going to have favor with all the people. It means that Christ has to be real to us when we leave the church building, when we are in our houses, when we're with our families. And now we see another principle. I'm just skipping uh, parts of the book of Acts so we could see these various principles. And uh, chapter 3, you could say it's the third principle we're talking about. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Someone say, hour of prayer. It means that they had structure. They didn't just go to the temple. They didn't just pray when the Holy Spirit came on them. But there was hours of prayer, set times. And uh, this particular time was uh, uh, 3 o'clock. Yeah, the ancient church recognized three prayer offices. That's how they referred to them. 9 o'clock, noon, and 3 in the afternoon. And just think of it this way. 9 o'clock is when they nailed Jesus to the cross. Time for prayer. Noon is when the sun was darkened while Christ was on the cross. Again, time for prayer. Uh, Three o'clock is when he died. Again, time for prayer. So that's, that's kind of how the ancient church kind of broke up their prayer day. Scholars tell us that they would stop everything they were doing and pray at 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. Some of them say also 6 p.m. The Muslims pray five times a day. Where did they get that from? They got that from the early church. David said in Psalm 119, seven times a day I stop and I give you thanks. Daniel prayed three times a day. Why is it important to have routines? Because if we just go by our feelings, we'll never pray. We'll never read the Bible. We have to set aside time every day. No matter how we feel, we drop everything. and We get alone with God for 10, 15 minutes. Maybe you should do it for an hour before you go to work in the morning because that's going to be the toughest thing. And every day have a routine. The word disciple comes from the word discipline. That's what they were called in the book of Acts. That's what they were called in the Gospels. They weren't even called Christians. They were called believers and disciples, which means that they walked in faith, but they also walked in discipline. And if you're not a disciplined person, you're not going to have a lot of faith. You're not going to have a lot of power. So you have to have structure. So the early church, the apostolic church, practiced... Yeah, by the way, the Greek word for disciple is mathetes, which means one who engages in learning through instruction from another pupil or an apprentice, or one who is rather constantly associated with somebody who has a pedagogical reputation or a particular set of views, disciple or adherent. So um, I'm not sure where he got his definition from, but it doesn't sound like he actually understands what the Greek word mathetes, which is where we get the word disciple from, actually means. 
practiced three times a day when they stop to pray. And sometimes, you know, people think, oh, that's just religious, that's ritualistic, that's like the denominations. No, that is in the apostolic church. We need to have those structures in our life. And uh, my friend wrote a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church. And- yeah, Peter Scazzaro, a guy who literally took um, purpose-driven theology and melded it with... Um, monastic mysticism. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. In fact, look in the archives of Fighting for the Faith. You can find our critiques of Peter Scazzaro's, um, you know, uh, basic Roman Catholic mysticism repackaged for purpose-driven people. And he talks about this uh, where it's like somebody who is in a blizzard, and if you're in a part of the country where you're not around a lot of people, a lot of times what people do in a blizzard is they will tie a rope around their body, and if they have to go outside for some reason, they will go out with the rope uh, leading back to their house so that whatever they have to do, they'll be able to find their way back in the house. Because if you don't have the rope, you could be 10 feet from your house and you could die outside because the, the snow blinds you. There's a whiteout. And you get disorientated. You don't know if you're going left, right, front, backwards. You have no idea where you are. So you could die. You could freeze to death 10 10 feet away from your house. So the rope brings you back into the house. Well, these times of daily prayer are the rope that gets you out of the blizzard of life, lead you back into the presence of God. And it guarantees that no matter what's going on, you're going to give God space to operate in your life. And if all you do is hang out, in the world and never give God space to work in you, you will be in the blizzard and you could die out there. So you need to have routines that pull you back in to the presence of God. And then we find in chapter 4, after a fantastic miracle, a guy who is lame for 38 years was healed and it caused a big, uh, you know, a, a, a big, uh, you know, celebration in the streets and got the religious leaders all upset because they were preaching the name of Jesus and they were thinking, wow, you know, they're uh, laying this man's blood on us and every time something happens in the name of Jesus, whom we crucified or part of the crucifixion, uh, the blame is going to go on them because he's doing all these great healings. So they were really upset. They called Peter and John and they started to in- interrogating them, finding out what's going on. We told you not to do this. And this is what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. He said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The stone has now become the cornerstone, the one you rejected. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here Peter is lecturing and interpreting the Old Testament to a rabbi, to a scholar. Because when he's talking about the stone, the builder rejected, that is a psalm that David wrote in Psalm 118. So what he's doing is he's teaching this learned religious leader about the Messiah. 
And verse 13 is very telling. It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized they, that they had been with Jesus. You remember in John chapter 7, they were astonished that Jesus spoke with authority and it says he had no letters. He had no training, no formal training, right? And so here Peter is teaching this scholar and they were shocked at the power, shocked at the healing and they observed that they were uneducated, but, but they had been with Jesus. Now, what does that teach us about the apostolic church? Well, these apostles were not trained formally in the religious rabbinic school that taught the Torah and the tradition of the elders. No, but they spent three years with Jesus in Jesus' own personal seminary training program. Yeah. They were not trained by professionals. They were trained as they did life with Jesus. They were trained in a community of faith. The apostolic church trains their own. We don't have to ship people out to Bible school. We don't have to ship people out to seminary. Matter of fact, when you send somebody out away from your church to be trained to be a pastor, for three or four years they have no pastor, which is nonsense. I mean, literally every pastor I know when he went to seminary had a pastor. So, you know, what he's just saying is nonsense. All they have is professors who don't really care about them. Just they're doing their job. They're nice people, but their job is not to pastor them, but to give them knowledge. And for three years, they have no covering, no apostolic authority, no community. No apostolic covering and authority. That's weird. Yeah, again, I just asked the question, is that a big A apostle or a little A apostle? And why would I need apostolic authority and covering when I'm in seminary? If we're all we're talking about are missionaries, you know? And they're getting a master's degree or a doctorate, and they come back thinking they could lead because they have knowledge. But this knowledge was disconnected from dealing with character issues, dealing with accountability, dealing with spiritual authority, proving themselves in the context of a church, and not having anyone holding them accountable. Yeah, it's weird because every confessional pastor, confessional Lutheran pastor I know, um, they when they went to seminary, they actually um, did pastoral work as part of their seminary on their vicarage. Have you heard of these concepts? Accountable. And when I preached in some Bible schools and half of the people were sleeping with each other. It was sexual immorality going on like you would not believe. So, yeah, I'm sure there are people committing all kinds of sins at Bible college and stuff. I was a resident counselor at a Christian college and know for fact that every one of those uh, college students were sinners. Uh, and some of them uh, were not actually bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Best way to put it. But should we now not send um, people to actually study God's word and learn the biblical languages, learn proper hermeneutics, good exegesis, and things like this, and be properly trained to teach in Christ's church? 
Um, yeah, it's kind of weird because Second uh, Timothy chapter two fifteen says, "Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth." Yeah, and and so. <laughs> That would require you to actually be properly trained in handling the word of truth, which is what a good seminary and Bible school is supposed to be doing. The apostolic church trains their own, raises up their own leaders. and In other words, they have no formal biblical training at all. Okay, yeah, all because, well, you know... The apostles were unlettered guys, but whoa, wait a second. What about that apostle Paul? He studied under Gamaliel. That apostle Paul who wrote the lion's share of the New Testament was a lettered fellow. Yeah, what do you do with that? And uh, We don't need to send people out to Bible school to train them. We should have church-based Bible school, right? And it meant that... Um, you cannot raise up leaders outside of the context of your local church. It just doesn't work. It's not biblical. That's- yeah, I mean, so the Apostle Paul, his entire ministry has got to be thrown. All of his books need to be thrown out of the New Testament because it doesn't work, according to what uh, Joseph Matera says here. That's why less than 5% of all those who go to seminary ever become full-time ministers. Yeah, that's, again, weird because, I mean, literally almost everybody I know who's been to seminary became a pastor. You know, it's a staggering figure, like 95%. Because it's just not effective. It's not successful. So what we do in our church is we recommend that people get secular degrees in college, especially business degrees, whatever they led, and we will train them the Bible. And so that's where they have the best of both worlds. They're getting a practical education. So you'll teach them how to eisegete and stick stuff in the biblical text the way you do, right, Joseph? And they're also learning the Bible from us. So uh, three of my oldest children all have business degrees. And, uh, you know, so uh, you do whatever you want, but... I believe with all my heart that we have to have training here in our local church. And so then we find later on in that chapter, uh, verse 32, we could say this is the fifth point of this Jerusalem church. It says now in verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things they had belonged to them. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Christ. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and distributed it to each as had need. And so what we see here is a a radical repudiation of personal ownership. Now, he wasn't pushing communism or socialism. It didn't say you couldn't own property. It was actually the opposite. What it said was, use your property and use your valuables for the glory of God, for the work of God. And so what it was, was 
a repudiation of individualistic materialism. That is to say, the gospel doesn't teach that it'll bless you just so you can live a nice life. The gospel doesn't teach that your money is just yours. The gospel doesn't teach that your house is yours or that your car is yours. The gospel teaches that it's God's. You see, actually, that would be the law. You see, not the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of what Christ has done for us on the cross, bleeding, dying, suffering, you know, and then rising from that. See, that's the gospel. The law tells us what we're supposed to do. See, Joseph Matera doesn't even know how to properly distinguish between the law and the gospel. And he's basically making it so the gospel apparently is giving us commands uh, you, you know, the gospel doesn't do that. The law of God does. It wasn't saying you shouldn't have property, saying you should use your property and your assets for the glory of God. And that's an important thing. And so when we uh, think that, uh, you know, the gospel is all about us, uh, it's all about us getting blessed and, you know, having nice houses, and we forget that... Yeah, how would the gospel be about me having a nice house? The gospel is the good news that Christ has died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That the main reason why God has given us prosperity is to confirm His covenant in the earth, is to be a blessing to others, then we are no longer apostolic. So the apostolic church teaches a radical faith in which not just 10% is God's, 100% is God's. He's telling you to give 10 as a bare minimum, but I'll be honest with you, in the early church, tithing was baby stuff. They gave a lot more than a tithe. You know, so tithing is good as entry level, but when you get in this thing and you're really radically committed... Yeah, tell me those texts in the New Testament that talk about, um, you know, that the tithing was baby stuff. I'd like to see that in, like as a normal pattern for giving in the uh, New Testament. Can you show me that, please? Committed to Christ, you are just God's treasurer. Everything you own is His. Uh, you, it's not your car, not your couch, not your house. It's not even your children. Everything that you have is God's. God is just trusting you with them. He's lending them to you. He's lending your children to you. And you are a steward, which means that you are managing someone else's property. We are just stewards. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience, apparently wanting them to make some decisions of one kind or another. Basically, I think the decision that needs to be made is you know, to to be apostolic, you know, our are you apostolic enough? Maybe you you haven't been. I don't know. The Holy Spirit wants you to be more apostolic. And so as we understand this, we see that Jesus gave us this mandate to radically give everything to him. And then we find in uh, chapter 6, it says, In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. What happened here was, even in the early church, they looked out for people of their own ethnicity. There was a form of racism there. 
what happened was they were feed. They didn't have any welfare system. They were only feeding those who were like them. The Hellenists were the Jews who accepted the Greek culture and spoke Greek. They were still Jews, but they assimilated into the Greek culture. The Hebrews, the ones who refused to speak Greek and assimilate into the Greek culture, didn't want to feed the ones that they thought were selling out their own ethnicity. And so they weren't first Christians, they were first Jews. We see that in the church today where people put their ethnicity before even their Christianity. So they had a big problem there. But what did Peter do? Peter, who was the leader of the church at that time, didn't stop focusing on his own calling. The early church looked at every problem as an opportunity, every challenge as an opportunity. This was a church of problem solvers, a church that looked at every challenge as a way to get to the next level. And so what happened? They prayed and God showed them to appoint other leaders. And this is how the diaconate came into, into being in the church and still exists today. And so they raised up deacons and they fed the people and they continued to focus. The apostles continued to focus on the word and prayer. They never panicked and said, oh, we better start feeding all these people. Oh, we're a bad witness of Christ. No, they never stopped focusing on the word and prayer and they allowed God to raise up other people. So in the apostolic church, we have problems. We have major issues. We may even have racism, but we don't give up. We look at that as an opportunity to have an incredible impact and go to another level. The next chapter in chapter seven, we see one of these deacons, because he was so faithful in ministering to the poor, God gave him an amazing ministry of evangelism. People were getting healed, saved, set free. His name was Stephen, or you could say Stephen. And he was so powerful that he became a threat to the religious leaders who hated Christians. And so we find that in chapter 7, um, chapter 7, verse 59, I believe it is, it says that they rushed against him. They cast him out of the city and they began throwing stones at him. And as they were stoning Stephen, verse 59, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The early church produced martyrs. When Jesus said, you shall receive power and be my witnesses, the Greek word for witness is the word where we get our word martyr. It's not just someone who preaches, it's someone who's willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, an apostolic church produces people who are all in, who won't deny Christ. Last week, we saw how ISIS beheaded 21 Egyptian Christians. They kneeled down. They never denied Jesus. They went to Libya just to find work. That's all. They were poor uh, Egyptian Christians just looking for work. They got kidnapped by these Muslim radicals. And they were kneeling down. 
And every one of them, right before they got their heads cut off, their last word was Jesus. It's the last word, just like Stephen. Early church produces martyrs. If we just did some kind of denominational system, we produce wimps. The apostolic church. That's right. Yeah, there, there's nobody who's willing to be martyred if they're part of a denominational church. It just goes without saying. Hog wash. Church produces powerful Christians who will not deny the faith. Who will... So get out of your denominational church and join an apostolic church, part of the new apostolic reformation. Not sure what apostolic means there. It could be big A, little a, or a mixture of the two. Who knows? But, oh, man, yeah, you'll finally be supercharged and be willing to give up your life. You know, but you can't do that if you're, you know, a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Baptist. No, none of those guys would ever lay down their life for Jesus. We'll turn the world upside down. Last but not least, this persecution not only resulted in killing Stephen, but it expanded. And now they wanted to wipe out the whole church. And it says that Saul went from house to house wrecking havoc, trying to kill Christians. He obviously became Paul the Apostle in the next chapter. And here it is amazing. This is an apostolic church led by those who walk with Jesus for three and a half years, who witnessed the resurrection. They had powerful meetings. In chapter 4, it says one of their prayer meetings was so powerful, the house was shaking. They just experienced the upper room where cloven tongues of fire fell on them. 3,000 were saved, speaking in other tongues, speaking in the language of probably 11 or 12 nations. They had experienced amazing miracles to the point at which when Peter walked in the street, people were healed by a shadow, says in chapter 5. So you'd think God is with them, right? But yet, in this apostolic church, people lost their lives. People lost their homes. Sometimes we think just because we follow Jesus, everything is just going to operate simple. We don't know God's ways. God allowed a crisis to come through a persecution. And why did he do that? I believe with all my heart. It's because they never obeyed his mandate. He said in Mark 16, to go into all the world and preach. He said in Matthew 28, to disciple all nations. In Acts 1, he said to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were still stuck in Jerusalem. They were stuck with people that look like them, talk like them, ate and drank like them, dressed like them. They were in their comfort zone. Even though they were great men of God, they were great apostles, they had great power, they were not obeying the mission of God. So God said, okay, you're not going to listen to my words. I'm going to shake up the tree. And he allowed a persecution. And what happened? Amazing. We see Philip, verse 4, and those who were scattered went about preaching the word everywhere they went. Philip went to a city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, 
And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. Because of the persecution, Philip turned a city upside down. Some people died. Some people lost their home. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. They didn't go. God shook their life up, forced it. And now leaders were sent. See, if a church doesn't send leaders out, God will shake the church up and make them go. And a whole... So if a church doesn't send leaders out, God will shake the church up. Uh huh. Not even sure what that means. City was turned upside down. And last but not least, some of those people who were persecuted, we see several chapters later, went to the city of Antioch and they founded the greatest apostolic church perhaps in history. Yeah, um, all true churches are apostolic, they teach the apostles' doctrine. And the same faith that the apostles taught. That was the main missionary church. The Jerusalem church never got it right. The Antioch church became the greatest sending out of missionaries. It sent Paul the apostle, Barnabas, and Silas, and all these others. And they wound up shaking the whole known world. And bringing the gospel to Europe and to different parts of the world. And so... The church's missionary thrust was born out of persecution, born out of a crisis. Sometimes even an apostolic church doesn't get it right, and God will bring a crisis. In our own life, every crisis may be God trying to speak to you, trying to shake you up so that you could go to the next level. Let's all pray. Done. So there you go. Uh, That's uh, Joseph Matera's. You know, vision of an apostolic church, and uh, do you have a much clearer picture now of what it means to be apostolic? <laughs> you think you're going, you know, right, exactly, because they don't clearly define things, and he was trying to paint a picture of what an apostolic church looks like by looking at big A apostles rather than small a apostles. And yet they claim that, uh, oh, no, 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 we don't believe in big a apostles. We believe in small a apostles who happened to lead the same way the big a guys did. Uh-huh. Yeah. This whole thing is just mass confusion. The error isn't on the part of those who've been critiquing the NAR. The error is on the part of those in the NAR who cannot and do not and will not rightly define the term apostle. I think you get the point. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by Carrie's death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen.